Welcome to coffeeis.me podcast, where me means you, or more precisely, us. This is the show where your host, Valerian, without using any interrogation techniques, convinces coffee professionals to reveal their secrets to teach and inspire you to make better coffee and earn a few bucks on the side, if that's what you fancy. Let the show begin. Hello, Coffee Is Me listeners. Welcome back to our podcast. This time there is no video because last time I was trying to do multiple things at once and the recording did not work, but do not worry, we will redo the last recording. Today we're recording again at uh, Roasting Lab Pro Business Course. Uh, we have a guest, Iver Wangenhoven from Chromatic Coffee. Welcome, Iver. It's a pleasure to be here, Valerian. Thanks for having me. Awesome. And we have also our students. Welcome, students. That was super enthusiastic. <laughs> so, Iver, in the beginning, we always have this warm-up question, and it's about your first coffee experience. Do you remember your first sip of coffee ever? Well, there was the first bad one. I, I started making coffee for my mom when I was like nine, and it was Nescafe, and I, I didn't like it with milk or sh sugar, nothing. But the first time I think I really enjoyed it, my mom brought me a mocha when I was 16. And I was very resistant to it, but I, I still tasted it. And I was like, okay. And then my, my first real sips of black coffee, I was 18. And it was an excuse to go hang out with my girlfriend at the time after school. And that was about it. Tell us about that. How can you date with coffee? <laughs> well, I went to an all-boys school. Um, so I didn't ever see her at school. So it was always after school, some excuse. And I wanted to not drink milk drinks. I just wasn't really into it at that point. Um, so it, it tasted like cat piss. It was awful. I th it was Tully's coffee that I started drinking. And it was so burnt and so, and you know, the coffee was there for like over an hour. And I just remember the flavor and it's just the, the flavor of the urn. And it, it was a not great experience, but I just kept on chugging it down. And then the first good experience, I was already working at Pete's Coffee as a barista. And I remember it was Ethiopia Supernatural. It was natural processed coffee. I, I love the name too. I thought it was super cool. And I was like, why does it taste like blueberries? It was just mind blowing. And that was, I probably was 19 at that time. And since then I fell in love and have not left coffee. Amazing. Um, we have a similar story on Pete, except uh, the fact that Pete did not hire me, I can thank everything to them. So, uh, because I would not work, you know, with Willem, I would not seek uh, my company in Slovakia, I would not do anything because most likely I was still working for Pete's. So thank you, Pete's. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Pete's. Very original. Yeah, I, I was a big fan. I'm still a big fan. Uh, I don't like dark roads, but I think they are, you know, I'm proud that they are from here. And uh, obviously the story is amazing with Alfred Pete. So it's like, I'm a little bit joking about that. Thank you that they didn't hire me because they are a corporation now and I do prefer, you know, working for smaller things, and I really prefer to work for in education, which is pretty awesome. But yeah, yay, Pete. Yeah, and the roasting facility is impressive. The roasting facility they have, very impressive. Beautiful machines. It, it kind of stays true, and their purchasing habits seem to be pretty consistently excellent as well. That's cool. I've never been. Uh, they should invite me. Although we had some people coming here for the queue. Uh, I had one person, yeah, but uh, I hope they will invite me. Hey, Pete, listen to this podcast, please. Invite me to the <laughs> I would love to drop a batch from one of those giant roasters because it's like a three-bag roaster. I've, I've never seen such a big cooling tray. It's hey, huge. Last time we had here uh, uh, people from Indonesia, 
they uh, are the biggest, the fifth biggest coffee roaster in the world. I was like, what, what are you doing here? So they roast 500 tons a day and they came here to learn to profile coffee. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> it's like, can you imagine? And batch roasters? They have, no, they have these, uh, these ultra fast roasters yeah, the, yeah, that the, yeah. go through tunnel in three minutes, you know, so, but you cannot really profile on it. Uh, but they were still interested in specialty coffee, so it was cool. I could not teach them anything, man. So, yeah, that was sad. They can teach me how to make business, right? 500 tons a day. Wow. Yeah, that's, but that's because you got continuous. There's no control there. You just turn it brown, cool it down. I like that. <laughs> That's about it. There's a lot of roasters who do that too. Uh, turn it brown and cool it down. That sounds great. Like, I usually call it the adding color on a coffee, but I like, like yours better. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. That's what I tell my roasters. Just turn it brown and cool it down, but with a lot more control, of course. You don't need this course. You just... <laughs> I, I, you know, I thought that this podcast will promote this course, but now we are killing this course. It's like, <laughs> you don't need a course. We just, you know, turn it brown and cool it down. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> All right. So you are from Chromatic. And I remember when I met you first time, I had no clue. You came here and you were tasting coffee and you're a pretty humble, pretty cool guy. And then Thanks. someone tells me, do you know that he's a co-founder of Chromatic? I was like, oh, that Chromatic, Chromatic? And they're like, yeah, yeah. I was like, I did not know that. I just know him. He's Iver, and Iver means uh, winter in French. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know why my parents were, there weren't even hippies, but they wanted a unique name. So, you know, when it comes to unique names, you know, Valerian, right? So I'm in the same camp. Anyway, so tell us, uh, when did you get the idea and why did you start Chromatic? There's some romance to it there's also a lot of practicality to it but i used to be a uh, roaster and started into green buying at barefoot coffee um, i moved down to san jose in 2009 specifically to work there um, and after about a year i got to the the roasting facility um, met producers uh, from el salvador and guatemala and um I was just really inspired by this, and the the producers from El Salvador, um, Gloria Rodriguez uh, from Finca San Jose, Finca Santa Marta, she's got all these amazing farms. Um, she had this open invitation, so I started saving up money, uh, went to go visit her, and um, the owner of Barefoot, the owner and founder of Barefoot, Andy Newbaum, uh, who now has a new company called Torque, he just started it, it's brand new, it's pretty cool. He was very encouraging of, of my growth and uh, when I told him that for my vacation, for my time off, I was choosing to go to a, visit a producer that grows coffee that we roast, he was like, what? That's what you're choosing to do with your time off? I'm like, yeah, that's what I want to do. A couple of weeks later, he's like, I'm going to go with you. So he ended up going and started showing me what he did and how he did it and like the values of relationship coffee and direct trade. So that's kind of how I started coffee purchasing. I almost didn't even know that you can just buy coffee from an importer. I was not on my docket whatsoever. But then in 2011, Andy had to sell the company. Um, he just had a lot of complications. Andy's a huge, big dreamer, and he did a lot of amazing things. And he loved that company, and he never took his eyes off the coffee. Um, but running into some financial issues, he, he had to sell. There was a new boss... Um, Steve was his name. 
it, he started not buying great coffees. It was hard. It was like emotionally really difficult time for me. Um, I, I was sad. I was really, really sad. And I didn't like what was going on. And then because of the lower quality of coffee, because of how everything happened, um, my now business partner, James Warren, he had purchased the cafe location as a franchise. Um, but he was also working at the roastery, so he knew what was going on. And at that point, I remember Steve and James got into an argument, and Steve was like, yeah, if you don't like how I'm doing it, like, why don't you go start your own thing? And he meant it as a threat. Um, James took it as an idea, and James knew that I was a little upset that I didn't get promoted to, to head roaster at that time. Not that I should have. I was very young, but my profiles were solid, like, consistently. Like, I, I, because I was in that, like, knowledge, information acquisition, hunger mode. So I was just like very methodical about everything I did, even though I may have not understood it fully. My, my energy and passion was in it and I would stay up to like 2 a.m. researching every, everything, every minute that I was awake, I was reading or learning or doing something hands-on about coffee. And uh, James recognized that and he was like, how would you like to come do this thing with me? I was like, let's do it. And that was February 2012, somewhere around there. And we started on the journey. And um, then another guy bought Barefoot. And at that point, like, we just dipped out, started doing our own thing. We had a small team and enclave, if you will, um, of like five people that kind of left, branched out. And that's how Chromatic started. So it was my, it was my opportunity and I was 26, 25, 26 at this point. So being young, being eager, wanting to do something for myself, having the opportunity to run a coffee program as I saw fit, I was game. I was ready to do it. I lost my apartment because I didn't get paid. I got into tons of debt. I slept in the roastery for like, until I met my wife, my now wife, and then I moved in with her. Um, it was, it was it was a lot of necessity, but it was so cool to just start doing everything. And uh, to this day, that producer, Gloria Rodriguez from El Salvador, I still buy her coffee. I still go visit her. Um, we still talk. And it's, it's been really a foundational piece to like how I vision direct trade, how I vision coffee purchasing, how I envision um, respecting coffees and roasting them to the best of our ability to like showcase that terroir or, or elements of it. So. That's fascinating. I did not know this story. Uh, I wish I asked it before because I would have tons of follow-up questions, which I do have. So, I mean, first of all, I have so many people here who come here, let's say they work for Pete or they work for somebody else, and they spend their own money and their own time to come here for the courses. And I understand these courses are not that cheap, especially not for baristas. And I'm like, these people are crazy in a good way. Absolutely. And these people are the ones who will at some point do the change in the world. Is it a case for you too? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, just, yeah. The thing is that you're going you're gonna to move forward. And those are the things that are really important, especially like if you have a vision. Not to, say, not to diminish anybody who shares your vision and wants to join you. Like what uh, I just sent uh, Aiden Delaney to take a Q grader course here with Valerian. And I remember... Oh, it was with Willem. Um, but uh, I see something like that. I, I remember sitting down with Aiden. I was like, in your mind, what is the mission of like Chromatic's 
purchasing habits and like like green buying department like what what are like the foundational pillars and Aiden was able to tell me in their own words like what it is that they saw and I was like okay like I I feel confident sharing my my platform with you for the first time ever for the first time in 10 years so chromatic is going to be 10 years in on October 13th since we opened our doors so ten, like that's a long time to be doing something and I find that beautiful and fascinating because it's we we can move together like forward and Aiden can bring their own ideas of what what to do or how how to grow or and that's like when you start building a company building a team it's different but then you have the ones that are working for larger companies spending their own time like you're gonna go open something up probably like you're gonna share your own vision and people are gonna be inspired by it and want to support it I think that's beautiful so when you guys came the few first days I kind of complained about California, United States, that, you know, this is better in Europe. But I'll tell you one reason why I love California and I love United States is that if somebody wants something really bad, they are happy to be, I'm sorry, homeless in a roastery, right? Yeah. Because you want to do that. Uh, for some unfortunate reasons, I have to sell a green plantation, which, you know, kind of breaks my heart on one hand because it's my baby. Uh, but... You know, I have these guys writing me that, hey, I would want to continue what you guys started. Um, you know, I'm happy to buy it. But can you move it six hours away where you live? I'm like, what do you mean? It's Slovakia. You know, you, you, can, you can move to this place. I mean, that's where the rostery is. That's where you should build. Why do you want to? You don't want to just move six hours away from your home? Because so how much do you really want it? Because they always start, oh, this was my dream. No, it's not your dream. Your dream is being in your town or something. United States is very different. If you want something, you go hustle for it. You do give up everything. Not everyone, obviously, but that's for me the big respect. Also, when you have some dream and you follow it, people don't laugh at you. In my country, often, when we started Green Plantation, we were a laughing stock of Facebook because we were the first company which brought in Chemex. We were the first company in Slovakia who was roasting light instead of dark or, you know, because Europe is espresso culture. So if, you, if I look back, also 11 years, we are one year older than you. If I look back 11 years and what was happening, you know, on Facebook, and you can still kind of check those posts, there's all these, like, like, you know, uh, they called Chemex the urinator because, you know, it's something like you have at doctors. I was like, you have no clue what you're talking about. Or the, the Aeropress they call the syringe, the giant syringe, you know, it's like, how stupid is that? I was like, no. And anytime people do that, by the way, they laugh at you. I'm like, okay, we are onto something. We are onto well, something yeah, interesting. Well, that's a, I think it's a fear response. Like to mock something, it's because you're afraid or intimidated when, when I really see that. And dreams take risks. You have to have your eye on the goal because obstacles will show up. But that, that passion, that drive, you'll overcome those. I didn't know how to do the majority of what I do now. I had no clue. I didn't care. I would stay up late. I would learn. Like I ended up being a graphic artist. It's not something that I, I wanted to be an artist when I was a kid. But like I designed those labels. Like I did a lot of stuff. And I, I work with other artists, local artists, like it, you got to support your community. You got to look up to like other people doing amazing stuff and give them like share your platform in that sense. But 
I do, I do see, you still see that a little bit here. Like the people that share like where you're from, sometimes they'll make fun of you. The people that don't know you, they'll, they'll amp you up because they, they see that success. They see that effort and they want to see that success story because it's good for them too because they, they, they will relate to you. They're like, maybe if they can do it, I can do it too. I think that's, that's what you see a lot here. People love progress. They love to, to, to see advancement. 100%. And that's why I, I'm here. I think that, that vibe really helps you. Uh, you guys should try to start business in my lands. I don't know how is it in France or somewhere else, uh, but I heard that, let's say, in, in Holland, some people also have the same kind of feeling that, oh, this is, you know, the business startups are not that... Uh, promoted that in the United States. But also talking about the risks, when should you take a risk? No, when you are young, that's the time. So, you know, even you are 26, just take the damn risk. You have so much, hopefully, so much life ahead of you. So take the damn risk if that's what you want to do. Like when I said to my dad that, you know, I was working for the UN. So I came back and I said to my dad, you know what? I'm not doing this anymore. This is just, I don't want to go to war zones and the government does not want to send me to a nice embassy to Paris or New York. So I was like, I'm not doing this. I'm going to do coffee. He said, you studied five years. You achieved something big in your career and you do coffee. I said, yeah, I'm just doing coffee. So, and I had American wife, so I blame her. Uh, <laughs> no, it's not her fault. It's, and she supported me, you know, so that's kind of cool. But I actually took my risk when I was in my 40s, which is, a bigger risk, right? Because in 40s... Very impressive. Well, it's not impressive. It's just like, I did a risk and I'm, I am so happy, man. And when I'm going back to the pits, that job would be very secure, very safe. But I was like, you know, we didn't click. And I was like, okay. It took me longer to get where I wanted to be, but teaching here, it's the best thing ever happened to me, so... Yeah, and, you know, I have a similar... My, my mother was not happy. My mother, being from Chile, I'm first-generation American... Um, when I told her like I was going to do coffee, she's like, what are you crazy? What are you going to be a barista your whole life? And I was like, no, there's like these people that travel around the world and like they buy the coffee and like, I, that's so cool. And like, I speak Spanish fluently. So like I do focus on Latin countries and it, the, the, the granularity of, of the experience of purchasing is so much better. But the, uh, my mom also told me though, I have her to thank for a lot of stuff. She was like, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to take big risks, do them now, fall, fall hard, get back up and keep on going because you have nothing to lose. I was like, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to do it. And that's another attitude here that, you know, when you fall on your face, people tell you that, you know, stand up, you know, and move on. In Europe, they will tell you, I told you so. You know, it's like, oh, no. And actually, I failed my first business when I came um, back from UN. I had a cafe, which didn't work out, you know, and... Basically, based on that, I was so conservative about my life for like almost 10 years. I always say I lost 10 years of my life because I was too afraid. And in the United States, it wouldn't happen. In the United States, my father-in-law, my friends, everybody would go like, okay, what's your next thing? It's like, my next thing? I just failed. Who cares? You know, move on. I mean, you learn. You didn't fail. And that's very important that anytime I make a mistake, for me, it's not a mistake. It's a learning experience. And I know it sounds like a cliche, but 100%, you learn from that and you just move on, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, Iver, uh, tell us about Chromatic. How does your production work? What you roast on, how you package, you know, how many people work there, and tell us your, all your secrets right now. 
Okay, all my secrets. Let's see. Uh, we've been at our current roasting facility since 2016. Um, it's it's a fairly large place. You can come visit it. It is a roastery cafe. Um, you know, over the years we've had a lot of hardship, a lot of a lot of um, run-ins with multiple different issues. But um, that said, like we only have the one coffee bar location at the roastery now. We did have more, but. A lot of things happened, um, but we roast on two different machines. The original ProBot L12 that Chromatic started on. I still have my original sample roaster, which is a Sona Fresco. I just outfitted it with a new um, uh, roasting software. So, you know, your own? What's that? Your no, own? no, the, our own software. Yeah. No, no, it's um, Sona Fresco software. But it is such an excellent roaster. It does take about nine minutes to roast, and it gets. 80-90% of the way similar to our production roasts with the ProBot. Yeah, even though it's an air roaster. The, the, the way it caramelizes the sugars, for some reason, it, it's similar to the drum. And the, the L12, we modified it heavily. We, we created an external, and we built a lot of stuff. So that's the thing. It's like Chromatic is very DIY because that's kind of how we are. And we learn new things. Like right now, we're 3D printing a bunch of stuff now because that's a new thing. My business partner, James Warren, he's very much equipment and tech. Like, he loves coffee. He loves drinking coffee, but he loves working on coffee machinery and equipment more, which is amazing when you're starting up and you have all these crazy machines and we've modified machines. Every single machine we have is modified somehow. It, we just we get a new machine, we open it up, check out its guts, make it work for what we, we need, that like its intended application, and then roll with that. And... Uh, we, we, I really wanted the drum to go slower, so we installed a variable frequency controller on the ProBot, so you have to get into the wiring. Um, it can roast and cool at the same time, which L12s are not designed to do, but we split the air streams to do that. Um, added an external chaff collector uh, for that, so it's, it's a really cool modified ProBot. Um, the larger machine we have is a Brazilian machine by a company called Lila. It's called the Opus 4. It is um, a 45 kilo machine. It roasts 100 pounds at a time, and it does about 420 roasted pounds an hour. Um, and our production is still manual. So we have a production head and about like five production people that work, and we stamp. Um, you can't see it on the podcast, but those bags are all stamped in-house with a, a hot stamp machine. Um, so we can, from... I can design something on like Monday morning, like very early Monday morning, submit it to the plate maker and have the plate Tuesday morning and the bags are shipping out Tuesday evening. Um, so our turnaround times have always been very quick, which is really important for a small business. But um, one of the big reasons why we chose, with this, chose this style is because I just hated putting stickers on bags when I was a production worker. I was like, no stickers, just no stickers. Like that was the one rule. And we ended up with this relatively unique style where we can have a consistent hot stamped front that I, I thought was very appealing. And we haven't really deviated from that concept for 10 years. And um, yeah, just roast to order, um, quick turnaround times. And that that's mainly the... You can see the production facility and how we do it. But a lot of shipments. How do you source your coffee? Is it importers or uh, direct trade? A lot of it is direct trade. Mostly direct trade. 
um, obviously I use importers and even for coffees that I've sourced directly, like from this producer, Idardo Hernandez, um, I've, and, and his cousin, Rosalio Ventura, who I've been working with since 2014, um, I've worked with three or four different importers to bring this coffee in um, until landing on my, my last importer, a good friend of mine, um, Michael Montante. He, uh, and he buys coffee from the co-op that they were able to build, but it, I, I always value direct trade more than anything because I don't think quality of cups starts with the seed necessarily. It starts with quality of life of the producer. Um, if the producer is capable of not just surviving, but thriving and capable of focusing on a lot more, their contributions to that cup is huge. So I always pay, even times where the coffee was you know, a little not, not as great, I would still pay high prices. He was able to dig himself out of debt. He was able to invest more into his community. He, and he always did. So it was important for me to find these people that you can see that they're good people, that they care more about their own personal gain, but they still have that drive and that hunger to improve. It's, it's a hard balance to find, I think. And then of course, like there's gonna be, you know, I work with other importers that do such a good job and their practices are amazing and consistent and, and very transparent. And I'll purchase lots from them and you know, I'll, I'll do, I'll get coffees on SAS. Like it, it's, I'll, I'll purchase around, I'll, I'll test new things out, and especially with um, some of the, the newer inoculations and, and fermentations. There's so many producers doing things and producers are coming up as well. So the, and I have to say, technology has changed things a lot. Because when I started going to Origin, people didn't really have cell phones at that time at, unless they had money. And now there's so much more presence of technology like all over the world and connecting is so much easier and just hopping on on a like whatsapp call or something like that is very very easy so i think the opportunities for direct trade have increased and i think it is very important not to, but i also want to grant legitimacy to the importers that are doing a great job and making it available because it is again very risky and we're not i don't think you're going to change the world by buying two or three bags like filling containers is is important. I think it's important, and I think to see like a, a change throughout the industry, and being in the specialty coffee sector, like we, we need to get real about our impact and the severity of our impact and the size of it. Because if we're making producers lose bits of coffee to just get that one perfect cup, like that's not making it a change. That's just that's just nitpicking. Like we, we need to see it at a, at a much larger scale and we need to see like 86 point coffees that are just like, like their whole farm is 86. Not that they threw away like 60% of their, their harvest just to pick out the best for you. So. I love what you said about the uh, farmers that, you know, they should not only survive because in some reason um, we think that, oh, let's help the farmers so they can survive. I think that's not enough. It's a romanticization of, of like, exactly. they're, they're poor and so are like artisanal. It's like, what are you talking? Like, that's... It's like they choice to be poor because they want to suffer that you can bring the coffee. No. <laughs> that's it's ridiculous. Not. They want iPhones. They want, you know, Teslas or whatever they, you know, Jeeps or whatever they want because they have the same dreams as us. And I know it sounds materialistic and stupid, but hey, they do want that and they should deserve that, right? They should not think about that, oh, I cannot afford a cell phone or cell plan because, you know, 
Well, so many of these producers, I meet like the, you know, producers that are my, my parents' age and they have a much more like, like I sent my kids to school. They went to be mechanical engineers or they started doing um, something with agriculture, became agronomists. A lot, they go to the city, they come back and they're like, I want to be on the farm. And with that new knowledge of like chemistry and science and technology, they improve things and they improve the quality. And if, the, if anything, they do a better job at showcasing terroir. They do a better job at showcasing the variety. They do a better job at showcasing their own family history, tradition, whatever it may be. And they can do a better job at building up the community. Because, yeah, one producer from one region doing well, okay. But can you get 20, 30, 40? And then, because there's certain things like you want that coffee, you can't get it because this roaster has been buying it for, for so long and they, they're so ingrained. But if their neighbor starts doing well and their neighbor starts doing well, it starts creating that possibility for other roasters to have those intimate, unique, direct connections. And you can have almost like your exclusive lot at your roastery that nobody else has, but it's just as good as somebody else's. And it's just as unique and it's just as direct. And there's that story. And that's the thing as, as a consumer, like if I meet, let's say, a chocolatier, or something like why that. At, why are you looking at me? Because you roast, you roast cacao just like I learned how to roast cacao. I'm just kidding. <clears throat> but it's, it's cool. Like if, if you can say like, oh yeah, I actually know the grower of this cacao. I'd be like, I'm, gonna, I'm going to migrate towards you and purchase stuff from you more because I feel security. Like I don't need the, the fair trade label. Like I don't even know what's going on with that. It's, just, it's still very like not transparent. But if you're like, here's the transparency. Like I'm one degree away from the producer. Yes, sign me up. I know where I'm putting my money. I know what I know where I'm going to vote with my dollars essentially. This is what I want to see more of. I know that's how I purchase my products. <clears throat> Wine, chocolate, you know, I love the stories and anytime I enjoy those uh products, I kind of envision myself and the place. It's kind of cool. And I know uh, a lot of consumers want the same, but I think many times consumers are I would use the word lazy, but maybe not it's not the correct word. It's something like uh, they have other things on their mind. So that's when the fair trade, you know, stamp kind of helps them. And I agree 100% with you. It's non-transparent. I think it's, you know, whatever. But they feel that they did something correct. The same with, you know, organic, I mean, especially in wine. I mean, it can mean almost anything, right? You don't use herbicides. You are organic. It's like, oh, come on. And it's like, yeah, it's ridiculous. there's so much chemistry in a wine. And you can use many of those. And you still call it organic. I was like, no. But knowing the story, knowing the winemaker and, you know, the practices or coffee in our world, it's so much more transparent and, and just makes more sense, right? I yeah, I, I always say that we, we don't necessarily sell coffee, we sell stories. The coffee is just the receipt. It's the, it's the, the, the non-fungible token, if you Dude, will. Dude, that's, <laughs> that's my same saying. Like, yeah. I always say, like, all the students, what we teach here, I'm like saying about Green Plantation, I was like, I don't sell green coffee at Green Plantation, I sell stories, and we always approach it that way. And yeah, I'm so happy to say that. Yeah, we, no, it's true. Basically, you are Green Plantation in the United States, or we are chromatic in, in Slovakia. Yeah, pretty, yeah. Awesome. Okay, so I want to go back to the hot stamps because I heard about your uh, craziness about hot stamps. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. On one hand, I love it because it's super unique. And boy, stickers, I so agree with you. I always say uh, to my students that one thing which I hate about coffee is packaging. I just don't like to do it. I love the design. I love to work on the design and everything. But to do packaging, which I had to do when I was running Alnish Coffee, 
was my least favorite time. And I tried to do everything. I tried to watch Anthony Bourdain while I'm doing it. I tried to listen to podcasts, but at some point you go like, damn, I'm packaging and putting these labels on it. So I love your approach towards that. But isn't this super inefficient? Does it cost you a lot of money to do this? It is just about as efficient as stickering. Um, it, it can happen within the same, especially like if you are considering putting stickers on both sides, which I am considering getting a more uh, standardized backplate so they only have to stamp the front side so it reduces workload in that sense. But setting up the machine to do a full run takes about the same time as stickering. So it's not inefficient in that sense. You do have to dial in a little bit more. It's almost like a roaster in that way. Like, is it hot enough? Because it has heat plates. You have to adjust the pressure depending on how much positive space is being used. Um, I've learned, I've had to learn how to design for the function of the hot stamp. You can't have like really big blocks of positive space with thin little lines or like like bits of negative space because of how the foil interacts. So it's a very physical, real interaction. It, it is a bit of an art. And I'm not gonna say it's not tedious, but it it is way more entertaining. And you can zone out, you can listen to podcasts, you can just stamp along. Um, but again, like the, the convenience of being able to turn something around very quickly is is great. And we've developed ways of, and again, the machine is modified to be easier on the of operator. Course. It has to be. Um, we we added little like servo motors to like pull the roll in, in specific way. Like, yeah. And if we want to do something custom, like we love... October, we love fall, we love Halloween, especially since our you know, anniversary birthday, if you will, is um, coming up. Like this weekend, we're gonna, we have black bags. We're gonna do different colored foils on black bags, like limited run, cafe only, and we can do that. So there's a lot of space for creativity. So yeah, sometimes you know, uh, convenience comes at the cost of creativity, but sometimes it comes from the production team. They're like, hey, we want to do like a special run. Can we? Is it okay if we do like yellow or white on black bags for these two and just for the weekend? It's like, yeah, if you guys want to do that, that's a great idea. Let's do that. Yeah, it'll be available for the weekend, and that's it. It's awesome. I'm asking because Green Plantation has these can where we have to create a label, and it's also very, uh, I would say, it can it can be creative. You can do different things with that label because you can print it on a regular you know, printer, but it's so inefficient. It's like it's crazy, like because you have to always label that. But I look, I was looking into the hot stamping, and maybe I should uh, uh, convince Willem to get one here for students so they can experience it. Because I think it's a it's a great idea. Uh, I just wonder about the efficiency, but you can fix it with a motor on the uh, hot stamp. <laughs> you can fix it with all sorts of things, really. So I can also see your bags are uh, not compostable. How important that is for you or why you decided just go with the regular bags? It is sadly very important to me. I keep on looking. Um, first thing is, is it's cost prohibitive. Still, it is still cost prohibitive. I, I am now currently looking at potential interactions with, you know, empty pack keeps on hitting me up and like, we have compostable, biodegradable, this and the, the one thing that I would like to do if I can't just get a fully compostable bag, is to move away from um, petrochemicals. If 
if it can just be like PLA corn based or something like that, that would be a great first step. Um, it, it is hard when, cause these bags go on the shelf at whole foods, other grocery stores. Freshness is very important as we've learned in coffee, but it's also like, you know, you, we can cool our jets a little bit with the, you know, it has to be two weeks. It's like, you know, I've had my coffees a month out, six, six weeks out especially for like the Brazils, the our gamut blend, which is based Brazil, Colombia, and Papua New Guinea now, they perform so well. And sometimes I prefer them at like three weeks, especially for the espressos. It's like, come on, dude, this is so delicious. Like I don't need a intense snappy acidity. I don't want an intense snappy acidity in my espresso. Like, yeah, may, if I have something unique, single origins, like something like that, like, yeah, I'll want it fresher. But the whole thing about buying it fresher is so that I have the time to consume it within the time frame that I want. Um, I don't even like drinking coffee that's younger than three to five days. Hundred percent. Like, yeah, some well for standardization for cupping or something like that. Yeah, but even then, it's like, man, it would be great if that CO two would finally leave this coffee. But you know why we do it at cupping that way? It's simple efficiency. If you ever wait coffee, you cannot wait for five days and stuff like that. So that's basically they made a protocol like, okay, let's do it between eight and 24 hours. Let's agree on that. And if everybody does that, basically we're evaluating apples to apples. But it's more about efficiency than quality, I think. Because I agree with you, like the Lamula, uh, Willem had a guest here and uh, I was looking, I didn't have any Lamula. I found one in a corner. I was like, oh my gosh, this was like roasted a month ago. So I served it and Willem was like, when did you roast this? I was like, a month ago, he was like, wow, fascinating. It was like super fruity. Everything was amazing. Yeah, the flavors, like they don't congeal, but they like, they're, they're still identifiable, but everything is so like refined and smoothed out in a way. Um, you're going to say like it's kind of rough around the edges. Like, no, like a, a coffee that's well laid. As long as it's, you know, in a cool, dark, dry place, free of oxygen, oxygen is going to be the enemy. But even for like some of our cuppings, we created this uh, vacuum chamber where we would artificially age coffees. <laughs> you just like put it under vacuum and it'll just pull a lot of CO2 out and it'll be ready to cup in like two hours. Like it cupped as if it was two days old. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> it, yeah it was fun. Cool. Uh, I have one more question. I have a lot of questions, but I want to ask you one more question before I give the space to you guys because I see that you are already like, you know, all nervous about the question. No, I'm kidding. Uh, so I, this question I like to ask uh, my guests because everybody had a different strategy about this. Uh, you guys started to do chromatic. Many of you, you know, basically became quotation mark homeless, basically giving up your jobs, taking these big risks. How did you find your first customers? What did you, how did how did you go about it? I think for where we were in San Jose, the way we presented ourselves and the way that the community turned its eyes towards us was really great. We got a lot of recognition right off the bat. Um, we ended up after a couple of years. A lot of the, the clientele was tech people um, because we were just a few blocks away from the Apple campus. A lot of people from Google liked it. And, you know, people with disposable income that love coffee. Come on, Silicon Valley, like coffee. It, there's programs named after coffee. Come on. It's, it was one of those things that it was really well, well suited. And then they start requesting our coffee 
at their campus. So we grew really big in the tech campus field. So we are in a lot of tech campuses. Um, the other side is just people that love the short, the stories that we share. Um, so our online business is about half of, of our business and then cafe and wholesale is, well, they're, they're kind of like thirds. They're, they're almost equally balanced out. Did you start with the cafe right away or is it something new? The cafe started right away, yeah. Okay, so... And well, the roastery existed kind of like underground, if you will, for, for eight months. And then we came out with the online store and the cafe. And then we had a lot of cafe presence and built up the online store over time. So who were your underground uh, customers? Uh, other baristas that were excited for us to come to the playing field. Um, a lot of people, especially like in 2012... Like a lot of people wanted to come work with us and you know, spread the word. And we put on the first uh, South Bay TNTs, Thursday Night Throwdowns. We did it every month. We would bring out machines to those cafe locations. Um, it garnered a lot of attention. It, there was a lot of press, newspapers, local rags, magazines. Um, we, I think it was 2013, like we were like, best of thrillist or something like that with all these other san francisco companies and people kept on being like who are these chumps at chromatic like south bay good coffee and i was like i grew up in san francisco too so i was like, i kind of knew the the attitude towards south bay um and i just loved it i just i, I like stirring the shit pot in that sense so it was really it was really entertaining to to see that but now it's yeah we have very loyal uh online following very loyal um surprisingly uh like tech campus customers clients as we as we call them yeah i always have the vibe uh that you are an awesome nerd so we can always nerd out and always jealous that you are on a higher level nerd than i am which is like <sighs> so it's i can see that tech industry really likes you um and those baristas actually a great idea and uh I just realized that that's what happened to us because when we started again, laughing stocks of Slovakia, there were a lot of baristas who already looked uh, out of Slovakia and they knew that this movement is happening. Um, we did not invent it in the competition, the third wave, obviously. I mean, we just basically, I fall in love with some brands here like Equator and I was like, oh, just bring it to Slovakia. Nobody does it that, you know, there. So. And there were a few baristas who were like, okay, let's check this out. They liked the idea and they were our first uh, ambassadors, you can call it. And that's how we got into first cafes through them. Uh, yeah, it's a change. All right, guys, do you have questions? Uh, my name is uh, Nate Donovan um, from uh, Portland, Maine, opening up a uh, bar cafe roastery in Portland, Maine. Uh, Instagram is uh, Novel Maine. Uh, so anyone that makes it to Portland, feel free to check us out. We're in the build-out phase, not open yet, so very fascinating to uh, hear your story. Right on, man. Love um, Portland. Big inspiration. When, when was the last time you went to Portland? Oh, you said Portland, Maine, right? Portland, oh, Maine. Oh, my bad. Mm -hmm. I was thinking, obviously. <laughs> the uh, better Portland, yeah. obviously. I haven't been to <laughs> Maine, but... So you made it all the way out here? All the way out here. Very cool. Mm -hmm. So it's... Uh, um, we have a lot of like local roasteries in Portland, but I don't think as much as out here. And there's like a lot more, at least my current experience out here so far is there's like a lot more eye on specialty coffee stuff. So uh, it's just fascinating to see everything. Coffees from all over the world uh, that Valerian is showing us and 
all kinds of stuff. So it's pretty cool. Um, a couple questions for you. Yeah, please. Um, so you mentioned your first boss was a guy named Andy. Yes. And he went with you to your first trip to El Salvador. Yeah, that's right. And he said he was talking to you about things that you were like his philosophies. What were a couple of those that really stuck with you? You know, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, I, I have a kid now and, and the thing that you start realizing with, with, thank you, with, with children, he's uh, three and a half now, is that they learn what you do, not what you say. And that's kind of what I saw with Andy. Like, I learned what he did. He, he said a lot of stuff, but I saw how he did things. And that, that was the biggest impression. Because um, An- Andy's just crazy. He's just all over the place. And, like, if, if you get a chance to meet him nowadays, he's just as wild as he ever was. Um, but the thing that I'll always take away is his, his generosity, his desire to work intimately with the producer and always putting the needs of the producer first. Even sometimes sacrificing your own uh, benefit for that. Um, it's to keep their, their advancement at your forefront. And I did a lot of things to make sure that, because you see, you see like the standards of living can be very different sometimes. Um, anytime you're just like, oh, it's so hard for me. It's so hard. It's like, is it, is it really that hard? Is it really that hard? First world problems. Yeah. It really is one of those like first world problem things. So like, don't lose focus of what's going on at a global scale, but always remember what it is, what is it that you can do locally and what is it that you really want to achieve? Well, it sounds like good lessons further on that, like actually going to the producers. Um, and it sounds like the majority of your stuff is directly from farmers, how did you like advance from El Salvador to meeting other uh, uh, farmers? It's, I think we were talking off uh, camera or off uh, podcast that a lot of your focus is uh, South America as a whole, but how do you develop those relationships? How do you even get introductions to those people? Like talk to me a little bit about that. It's a great question. So, um, Gloria Rodriguez's son-in-law, Luis Rodriguez, just happens to have the same last name. Um, sadly, uh, her daughter, uh, Jose, uh, Maria Jose, is dead, deceased a few years ago from cancer, but he has always been a huge supporter and friend. Um, he has his own export company, and uh, Rosalio Ventura, the producer from Honduras, was uh, he sent... Louis some coffees. Um, Louis is, he found it to be very interesting, this cultivar called Parinema. Um, it reminded me a little bit of, not not so much, but like it ha- kind of had like this watermelon characteristic. The, the bean shape was really elongated and was kind of Gesha-like. And I was like, this is so cool. So when I was down in Honduras visiting them, he was like, let's pop on over to Honduras because if you look at the map, it's a very small area. It's like, it's a shorter drive than from here to LA. You know, it's, it's like, yeah, let's just go over to Honduras. Met with the producer. He only produced a few bags, like three bags. I bought them all. And then he produced a few more bags and he started planting more coffee. And like, that's how that relationship started building up. Um, I also knew people in Guatemala, again, from that uh, 
like meet the producers event that Andy did um, a couple years prior to that. And then I started, you know, Expo helped with meeting some producers and getting invited out. Um, I have also, you know, I work with a lot of producers in the Amazon rainforest in Ecuador. Um, I've been a judge for their Taza Dorada Robusta competition. I do purchase Robusta. I do like Robusta to an extent. <gasps> um, I know, shocking. Um, I, I mean, it has a time and place. And That's a different Robusta what you uh, offer. I had something so, you know, I'm, you know, you know that I'm not a big fan of Robusta, but uh, you guys gave us a little bit last time. It was very, very interesting. I did not have Robusta traces in it at all. Yeah, you know, for, for me, the main thing at first was just like, it doesn't taste like burnt tires or burnt popcorn or old maids or this anything nasty. Rubber? Yeah, it was like, this isn't, like, this is, it, it's weird. Like, it, it's like a strange nuttiness, like Brazil nuts and basmati rice and malt and you might like it. I heard you like it. So you might actually really enjoy it. There's no acidity, but the body is phenomenal. And you put that in an espresso blend at like 15 to 30%. Oh, my goodness. That it is a different experience. And a lot, of, a lot of the old school Europeans really like that too. Germans love it. I was just in Europe. I was in, wasn't in your country, but... Uh, Czechia had by far the best third wave specialty coffee that I had in the entirety of Europe. And the Germans, like their like standard blends are like 80% Robusta. It's a wow. preference thing. I, I have Valer friends. Valerian scoffed at uh, <laughs> Robusta espresso. I will still, that's what I grew up with. It's, it's not very good, but we are talking about the two different Robustas. I mean, yeah. I think in Europe, the reason why they blend espresso blends, well, they use Robusta is the bullshit reason is, oh, it has to stabilize the crema. The real reason is cost. But I think your Robusta many times costs more. It than does Arabica. cost more. I'm paying a lot. Uh, I'm paying upwards of five, eight dollars uh, a pound for for this is, stuff. Is that with um, shipping as well? Or is that just this, this would be um, FOB, so the pre-shipments. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, and I usually have it air freighted. Because it's such a small quantity, and bling, I want to. Bling. Yeah, it's only a couple thousand dollars. <laughs> but that can be the future for robusta, right? Because we we need robusta. I'm not saying we should be. I think robusta is super super important. It, I think one of the things that happens is that even at like it it, it comes down to money. It's always going to come down to money, especially when you're talking about business. Um, there's very little money in robusta. Even if a lot of these producers did the best job possible, it's just a fraction of the cost of Arabica. But here's the thing. Let, let's say especially like this Amazonian stuff, very unique emerging origin, right? Um, not common. Arabica cannot do well at all in this environment. Too much rainfall. Um, it, it's too hot. Like it's just nuts. It's just not well suited for it but the yields of this stuff when you see these plants oh my goodness they are huge they are just the the production of coffee is insane like i've never seen so many beans on a tree or fruit i should say um but here's the thing it's been subject to poor practices because it doesn't yield a cost and and if you put in a lot of effort and you don't see any result if there's no positive feedback why would you keep on putting effort no, into something no, no reward there's no reward so doing these competitions like the Taza Dorada and things like that and showing other producers that there is there are buyers like myself that will pay a premium if you do a good job. So they start employing best practices. They start taking the, the best practices of, of Arabica and applying it to Robusta 
it now, works. Now, do you uh, apply any like direct pressure on the farmer of saying, "Hey, would you mind doing this?" Or they just see the profit incentive and they go, "Great, I, we're going to do this." Partially for the ones that I don't know, it's exposure. Let's call it that way. But I do put pressure on producers. I do. I definitely, absolutely, one hundred percent say, "If you do this for me, I will give you this." And if they agree then we have a deal and that's how we move forward with the business like that. These experiments were partially pressure. The, the yeast inoculations. I was like, I want this, do this, figure this out. Like, how can we get it going together? We did a carbonic maceration the year prior to, to this and it came out great. And then we did it again and it came out better. And I was like, well, let's do something else. And there, but is there's that surety of like, you make it, I'll pay you. You tell me, they're like, well, you tell me. I'm like, well, it's uh, six bucks. They're like, all right, yeah, yeah, okay. Or they're like, oh, you know, can you do me like 20 more cents or something like that? I was like, yes, like, let's figure it out. Like, I can bring these here because I see it. When it comes to those kind of, kind of costs, I'm not buying huge, huge volumes, but I'm the one that's telling them that I want something. I'm not going to nickel and dime them. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a custom order. so they It's my to, responsibility yeah. to market these coffees and to sell them and to share that story because that is what I'm doing. If I can't do a good job at that, of course I'm going to start tripping about the price because I'm just like, oh, you know, well, my clientele doesn't like... I've been fortunate enough that my clientele consumes what, what I give them and how I, how I want to share it with them. And I'm like, try this. It's awesome. They're like, oh, okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll get it. Thank you. Uh, it, I think it's, it's good that you put the pressure on yourself to, uh, to actually do the selling versus trying to punish the, uh, the producer for your inability to sell the, the, the product. So my wackadoodle idea. So I might as well push it. So, I mean, the, the incentive is in the right place for everyone to succeed. So, um, I think that's a good thing. So just to back to the original question, finding these producers, it's really just uh, a product of you being in the ecosystem and just naturally like rooting out and finding other people. Or do you like, I'm going to go to the middle of the Amazon and find these people like, ha, like what was, what do you think is like the easiest way or maybe not the easiest way isn't the right w way to put it, but the, uh, most natural way to find other farmers. Yeah. Just like most importantly, what would you recommend to people starting to find direct supply, like suppliers and producers? Like, is there any like pr pragmatic advice you could provide us to that end? First of all, is, is that what you really want to do? Is that a value you have for yourself? Because if it's something you want to do for marketing or to do because you think it's the right thing, avoid it. Do not do it. You will probably fail unless you have a boatload of money behind you. If it's something you believe in, like in your heart, if, if it's something that is, is a moral value to have a connection with somebody and to build a relationship and to do it well, then absolutely reach out take risks, take a trip. Don't, don't go completely blind. Like, like if, if you have a chance to meet somebody or you met somebody at an expo, go to an expo, network, talk to people, talk to me, talk to Valerian. Like we are those access points. And a lot of us want to share. A lot of us are not trying to gatekeep. We want to protect our interests, but we're not trying to gatekeep. We can introduce you. I might know of a producer in Honduras that's looking for a roaster to partner up with, to build a connection, to have a, a long, sustained relationship, because those long, sustained relationships are security. 
Like in our online store, subscriptions, they're great. That's a relationship. I know that money's coming in. They want a similar thing. They want to know that you're going to come back year after year. And if you ditch out on them after like, if they produce a bad lot or like not as good of a lot one year and you're just like, oh, it's bad. I'm out. Like what? That's come on. That's not, that's yeah, not that's how not these, a partnership. That's not how partnerships work. You know, like you, you kind of go like, okay, man, Hey, this wasn't great, but like, like I'll help you. You help me. We figure this out. Like, and you work, you work, you communicate, you're, you're transparent. Like you use your words. Like as an adult, you talk about what you're feeling, like all those things, crucial, important at any kind of relationship. Yeah, for certain. Yeah. By the way, uh, what we, you, you can, I know what you're asking because I'm similar situation. Green Plantation is a small company. I always talk about it, but we are tiny. Compared to Chromatic, we are just like a tiny little bug. So we cannot buy from Origin. It's just not possible because if I told you, fill up the container, that's when it's worth for you. And sharing content is always weird and we could not find importers like you did that can help you to bring those coffees in. So we always have to buy from importers. There's no other way. That said, what I can do, I can meet people at the expos, you know, some farmers, and we click, because I am also agree with you about the human part of it. I actually care more about how cool the person is rather than the coffee, because we can figure out the coffee. There's a lot of good coffees out there, but I want to have that relation. I can go like, hey, man, who is your important in Europe? And they tell you, oh, you know, we use this, or we don't have yet, or whatever they tell you, and you find solutions for that. Or you can do find somebody on Instagram. Nowadays, you mentioned that people have you know cameras, and there's a lot of farmers on Instagram. You find somebody and say, "Oh, I love this farm. Uh, she's really awesome. Let's just you know ask her who is your import in the United States, or how do you get your coffee in the United States?" And maybe you can air freight it, you know, like you do with some coffees. Yeah, it's a, if if you're looking for importers, like if if I were to recommend or like share what I did, like well, my friend more recently, Labaya. He's building those relationships. He's looking for roasters to help him pack that container. He will introduce you to the producer. You are now maybe part of like this group, but that isn't any less valuable. Like you can still have a conversation with this person. And even though the importer is like purchasing the coffee, like I wouldn't disqualify that entirely as as direct trade, just because you're not bringing, I've brought in my own supply. I hate that process. I hate the paperwork. It is not what I want to do. I want to be slurping coffees on the table. I don't want to be doing paperwork. Okay. Um, so yeah, find an importer who shares similar values as you and seems to be doing the things that you want to be doing with them. Like uh, coffee quests, cafe imports, especially if you're on the East coast. Well, one, one of the, um, reasons I ask that question is I, I grew up on a farm and like knowing where your food comes from is pretty important. And then I had a trip to Guatemala and a friend who runs a coffee farm and having that immersion type experience is one of the reasons why I actually get extremely interested in roasting coffee and seeing where it comes from, seeing the pickers, like watching the whole thing. So to me, direct a farmer, uh, I think is important in a lot of ways, but I completely see the value in importers. Um, but that, that's why I was curious about, you know, how do you kind of find routes to find other direct-to-farmer? But. but what Iver told you, that importers are your paperwork. You can't create that relation with the farmer. Yeah, that's true. And importers are doing the job which they're good at. And except the paperwork, 
when I imported the stuff for Green Plantation, let's say we got a coffee bike from, uh, from Alibaba and stuff like that, we got ripped off. Those shipping companies are mafia. We just had similar issue at Boot Coffee when I got into fight with Willem about some shipment because, you know, there was some email we didn't notice and the company who had this coffee in the port, they were charging us, you know, left kidney and a heart for every single day we didn't pick up the coffee. I'm like, this is ridiculous. And it happened to me multiple times. And I hate to do it. I don't exactly, I 100% agree with you, man. Yeah. I don't want to do that. Coffee ownership is a game of hot potato. Nobody wants to own the coffee at any point in time. Nobody wants to hold it. Nobody wants to be responsible for it. Nobody wants to pay for it. It is a nightmare. It is such a nightmare in that sense. And it, it, importers are a godsend. I, some of them, yeah, are like, you know, middle folk that are going to, you know, skim a, a lot more off the top than you want. But some of them are very honest. They just want to get paid for their due diligence because it is a lot of work. I, I value importers a lot. They are, they mm. will be your friend. Well, that, that's, that's very good to know. Yeah, just find the good ones for that, that mm-hmm. you know, they suit your needs. So kind of moving off of uh, the, that topic, you've been in business for 10 years. Correct. What would you say is like the stages of learning um, being in in this business for a decade? So it's like, what, the first two years, like, oh, here's the learning curve versus the next six years. For, you know what I mean? Is there a way to break up what you mentally have learned and experience-wise? Like, what does that look like over 10 years? I don't think you'll ever stop learning and it, it has felt like one motion <laughs> over the past 10 years. And th- there has been some like... You, you couldn't put like a stake down. in the ground and say, first two years, all right, we get to stop the cafe. It's nonlinear. Or, it, or at least for mean? us, it's been nonlinear. And I okay. think that's what I'm trying to say is that like our ability to be flexible um, and just rolling with whatever has come at us, that mm-hmm. like, expansion is, is hard. Like growing too fast well, is I bad. I have a, other questions for you on the yeah. That uh, that some, something happened. So I'm curious about that. But as far, as far as your overall learning, it's just I I I became a better roaster over that time. I became better at logistics. I became better at um, smoothing out issues with like all the ancillary stuff to the coffee, like package design and how to order and pars and like all the business side of stuff. Learn spreadsheets if you don't know already how to use a spreadsheet. That will save your life. It's like a little window into the future. It, it can say, yeah, like projections, all that's really great. I, I've overpurchased coffee before uh, because I, I got a little too big for my britches kind of thing. I was just like, oh, I can move. I was like, no. <laughs> I guess it's a little bit more than I, than I expected, um, which gives you another problem. But the learning curve has just been, I think the first three years was just trying to figure out like how to actually run a business. I was not a business person, nor did I want to be. I just wanted to be some coffee nerd that got to do his hobby every day. And then I, I had to start, you know, making sure that the bills were paid and all the things were, were done. That makes sense. Well, mm-hmm. I've been, uh, I've been hogging the mic, so I'm going to let, uh, some other people attempt yeah, this, but sure. before, uh, that happens before like this all wraps up, could you talk about the, the cafe expansion and then, bringing it back down to uh yeah so my um you know I, I don't hear a lot of people talk about this but when you start a company especially when you are young and you don't have money and you don't have a good credit score and you don't have a lot of things like 
your opportunities can be a little limited, especially if like banks don't want to give you money and stuff like that. So how you get money to start your company, uh, I think more business owners could talk about that. Um, or I don't know if it'll like reveal some people's privilege too much, but I, I was fortunate that we were able to get investment from my business partner's sister. She had done relatively okay during the dot-com boom in the 90s in, in Silicon Valley, but she was living in Spain. Um, so when we had this idea, he was like, I'll just ask my sister for money. They, they had not the best relationship, but he was like, yeah, we'll try it out. So that's where a lot of the money came from. I didn't care. Again, I was just like focused on the coffee. I was staying up super late, learning about coffee. I was like, I don't care where the money comes from. I just want to do this. Um, so I just kept on operating and working and operating and working. And like I brought in less than $14,000 a year um, for a couple years. Like that's why I couldn't live anywhere. Because um, I just wasn't focused on, on the money. I just didn't care. Like I almost didn't even care enough to eat. Like I was just like, I'll just do this. Like whatever, I'll just put it on a credit card and forget about it. Um, but having her as a angel investor essentially was great for the first couple of years until she wanted to start making more decisions. And that's where like, there was like familial tension. And I'm like, I don't want to be in the middle of this. I just want to like do what I do. Um, but then we like split the companies up. Um, and that's where I actually got like my shares of the company, um, and ownership of all the, the, the IP and, and all that. So that was really great for me, especially like a, a great opportunity for me to have actual ownership of, of the, the brand that I helped build for those first couple of years. Um, and she ran those cafes and right around COVID time, um, she shut it down and started it up as, as her own brand. And we, we were already in the process of downsizing, which was a godsend. Cause if we had continued expansion through COVID, we would not, I would not be here right now talking to you about chromatic. That's a great point. And uh, first of all, thank you for sharing because people don't like to share. People don't like, like to share about that. Where, where they got money from, you know, and that's yeah. important. But you also have to realize that, and you got lucky because you could get shares, but sometimes if you don't own the shares of your own company or whatever you start, you can end up out. That's so, I heard so many stories that somebody with passion started something and there was an investor behind that person. And at some point, Rightfully so, investors want their money because they didn't give you the money because, you know, they like you. They basically hoped for, you know, profits, which I understand. But if you don't have stakes, if you don't own shares of that company, you can get out. Not only that, you have to realize that your shares are the most valuable thing ever. Because I understand with Green Plantation, when we started, we put together 8,000 euros together. That's what we could afford, three of us. And that was our first roster, Turkish, you know, uh, that red one I showed you guys made us like six, 700,000 euros since then. It cost us $3,000 from Turkey. Not a great roster, but worked. And we needed some green coffee and some space. So, you know, that's what we could afford. So if you say that, you know, the one share was worth, uh, what is it, 800 euros? Then No, 80 euros. Yeah, 80 euros one share. Today, the share, what we're selling the company for, and we're selling it in three parts because we sell the business separately. We sell because we own the real estate, which is yay. So that's separate. And we separately have the, uh, the UG22, which is worth itself $70,000, $50,000, So would be like four or 5,000 euros per share. So 80 to four or 5,000. And I know in the beginning you don't see that, but as the company grows, 
the value is there. So be very careful about your shares. Yeah, I got very lucky. I'd say I'm in the minority of, of that story. And I don't think that's a positive thing. I, I think it's just, I, I feel fortunate. I feel fortunate. I don't think it's like some, I, I don't think it's some special virtue of mine. Like I think it's a combination of like perseverance and endurance and hard work and, and just like bullheadedness to like not give up something that was, you know, small and just my thing. Um, but it was my thing. That was it. Like, it's my vision. Like, I wanted it back. And I'm happy that I get to continue sharing through that. But, yeah, just be careful where you take money from because you might piss that person off, especially if you're, like, an artist or visionary. <laughs> just saying. Um, yeah, my name is Zach. Uh, I'm from Central Texas. Um, so I was really excited when Valerian said you were going to be a guest because, you know, chromatic, but also... I'd read about Ozma. Yeah. I'm saying that right. So Ozma, yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I love iced coffee, cold coffee, but I, it's, you know, I get that there's an efficiency kind of perspective to it also, but, but the idea of like having a cold beverage that you can get more of like what, what we love about coffee, um, from is really exciting to be able to, to work with that. So I just wonder if you could talk about maybe the background a little bit, um, kind of cool things you're doing or you see people doing with the, the system or, you know, what the status of that. Yeah. So I got in to Ozma pretty much at like ground level. I, 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 I helped put the original machine out to market, which was a, a handheld operated device with a compostable pod system. Um, I thought it was made of sugarcane fiber. I thought it was really cool, but there were some definite, definite issues um, with just tolerances and, and forces and like, requirements um so my my partner james and i um we kind of were like oh we want to like you know help with this project a little bit and we ended up on the the current iteration of of the osma um there's a lot of iterative design but we were like why don't we just use equipment that we know functions like espresso equipment that can take high pressures um and my my goal for it was to brew because uh Joey Roth is the original inventor of the Ozma and the, the tech behind it and the concepts behind it, um, which is pretty much like using a diaphragm pump to, to extract. Nobody in coffee would use a diaphragm pump because they're noisy and annoying. Um, they're like incredibly high flow rates. It's just strange. But I think it always takes somebody that's outside of the industry to bring in new ideas to kind of spark some interest. And I, I've learned over time is stay as open-minded as possible. If somebody says like, like it just sounds like bad words and you're like, oh goodness, no. Like I don't want to be hearing any of this. Just like, you know what? Just hear them out. Just hear them out. Try it out. Do as objective of an, of an analysis as you can on the thing. And then if it's still not working, like, okay, move on. Like they'll find somebody else or whatever it may be. But I, I was inspired and I had the vision and like, this is the kind of thing that I built out. I was like, I want to see this eventually be a commercial type machine where you can have on demand instant, like cold brew or espresso that can be brewed in the same or less time. Cause it's actually 90 seconds, less time than a pour over and markets to a growing market of people who enjoy cold coffee and cold beverages and cold brewed coffee in specific. It doesn't taste like a cold brew. It kind of tastes somewhere between like a cold brew and a flash brew. Um, but, and, and it still is in the phases where like, you have to know how to use the machine, like a stick shift. Like it's, it's tricky, but it's functional. Um, and it can make, that, that was the thing. 
you go to a cafe with your friends, everybody's getting pour overs. I have like 20 different offerings on the shelf that you can just like pick from. It's like, I want to taste that as a pour over. But then the person who likes cold brew, like what? Like we have, we have a tap, but they can get what? Nitro, whatever you brewed the previous night or earlier in the week. And that's it. Maybe a can if you have a can or something bottled. And but they have no option, really, unless they want like ice, like the Japanese style iced coffee. And I don't even like the flavor of that myself. It's always kind of like woody and shocked. Um, so I was like, that would be so cool. If you can just be like, I want to try that anaerobic process, whatever, or I want to taste that natural Ethiopian, and it can just be brewed for you right there. And it can be either shot or not. And now that like cold foam is is starting to be a thing because of Starbucks, like. I've been able to make an actual cold cappuccino, like at like cappuccino proportions, cappuccino, everything, just the temperature is cold, like 45 degrees Fahrenheit. Like, and it's interesting, um, but it's, it's a cool piece of tech. Um, it's still pretty much geared toward the prosumer market. Uh, I would like to see it move in the direction of commercial because I think that's where it'll gain the most amount of uh, viability and notoriety. Um, and use as well. But there is something particularly delightful about a cold shot of espresso that you can drink immediately and the viscosity. Like I'd say that's one of the features that no other, I think Valerian tried it. It has a, a mouthfeel that is different than espresso. It's like more syrupy. It is a little bit lighter, but it is, it's fun. At some point when you pulled it for me, my favorite was very first time. Yeah. Uh, the second, third time was didn't get the same feeling, but the very first time it almost felt like it had this bubbliness, like uh, if you would nitro or something. Yeah, like an effervescence. Cool. Yeah, yeah, it kind of does that. Like, and, you, and when you do the the cold brew, which it can pull like eight ounces in about ninety seconds as well, you kind of get that nitro vibe without the nitro. I mean, it cascades and everything. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, for sure. Hi, I'm, my name is Josh. Um, I own a coffee shop in LA. I've been open for three years. It's called Open Dells. Come check us out. <laughs> For sure. Um, Love LA. Yeah. Yeah, the coffee scene is growing pretty fast out there. Yeah, it's dope. Um, so we're just getting into roasting or like want to. We're a small shop. We do about like 100 pounds a day or a week of coffee. What size of a roaster do you think someone like us should start with? Because we kind of just want to start roasting for our business, possibly open another shop and just kind of cut our costs on roasting for ourselves 12 to 20 22 24 kilo 12 to 24 kilos yeah it's i'm first of all sweet spot for sure the most fun you're gonna have you can always add hours or shifts um machines do like to work uh, what i've learned they do like to operate yeah like if, if you're planning on expanding to wholesale and and doing a lot more a 22 24 kilo is gonna be like it'll save you years down the line, but a 12 kilo man, those are the most fun in my opinion. It's, it feels good to drop batches. You have so much control. You can make your, your roasts nice and short. Like, uh, like if you're trying to, I don't roast anything under eight minutes, but sometimes those like eight minute roasts are pretty tight. We're right around like nine to 12 minutes for the majority of our production roasts. Um, but that's, that, that's where it's at. And, uh, if you can find old machines, that's always great. I've been, I was looking on, on Craigslist or, uh, other sites they, they're, they're getting a little expensive, but. So that's another question I have is 
Craigslist is probably a good place to look. Any other good places to check out? Facebook. Facebook. Yeah, marketplace. Facebook marketplace. There are some groups there. Uh, and my secret is uh, if you speak other languages than English, go to European sites. Russia used to be a great source for UGs, but Russia right now, it's, you know. I imagine the shipping would be crazy. Yeah, but if you buy like UG, like I bought my UG22 for 4,000 euros. I invested in 4,000 euros in it. And if you would ship it here, maybe it's, I don't know, 5,000. So for 15,000, you have UG22. I mean, ask anyone here how much they would pay for UG22. Like I would, dude, if I can find a UG22, like 72,000, something like See that? 64. Yeah, like it's still, yeah, it's going to be a pain in the butt, <laughs> but, you know, it may be worth it. So is it cool also if I, if while I'm looking, I can contact you guys and say like, hey, is this a price that's... Yeah, hit me up. Like too high or... I have a great news for you. You don't know yet. At the end of the course, uh, you guys are going to join our WhatsApp group. And there are other people there already. And they're doing exactly the same what you do. They're searching for roasters. And, you know, we can discuss it there too. But of course, you know, Iver is more than happy. And you can ask other coffee professionals. They will tell you their opinion. But on that group, we actually share sometimes. Oh, I found this on internet. What do you guys think? You know, so. Well, that's awesome. Well, I think all the other guys kind of asked all the questions I was going to ask. I just wanted to say. One thing I will say, if, if just because I don't want to taste this out in the world, jet burners that aren't like shielded on stainless steel drums, please don't do that. I really don't like that flavor profile. It just lends itself to like hot spots and scorching. And I just, if you can avoid a stainless steel drum altogether, that would be cool. I like mild steel flavors as far as drum roasting goes. Not that all steel drums are bad, like Loring's do a good job and uh, Diedrich's do a good job because they have the IR, so it's a little different tech. But like, just pay attention to like the relationship between the burners and the metal. It matters. Yeah. So how about uh, on UG22, some burner like Dietrich has? That's our UG22. We but changed our burner for two reasons. One, that we could not get enough heat from the original burners. I don't know why. Maybe the gas type. You know, it's, it's a roaster from the 60s. And so we had to preheat it for one hour before we did anything. And then other reason is that this new burner, what we have in it, it's a French-made, something like Dietrich. It was something similar. It's like just radiant heat there's no flames really it's awesome yeah and the gas adjustments are also a little smoother so you 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 won't like mess up as badly definitely don't miss an adjustment on ir because then you're done like that that it's going to take off to the moon but yeah it's just also for roasters what i try to tell them sometimes is like you're never actually really going to know how to roast coffee you're going to know how to manipulate environments and control machinery but coffee Nah, there's a lot going on, man. A lot. <laughs> this is very confusing. Uh, another side question. You guys said you guys use um, 3D printers. Do you guys print parts for your machinery? or is that, Yes. That's pretty insane. Yeah. So, we will create custom parts. Like right now, I'm work I have a Versalab grinder um, and a single dosing system. So we're creating a hopper that is specific to uh, our our coffee cellar like storage tubes um to just like kind of plug it in and just let it do its thing um yeah anything literally anything like we needed to plug up a hole on a tap tower we just 3d printed that because 
you know, it just took a couple that's minutes. Pretty great. Or, pretty yeah. <laughs> so it's cool. Like 3D, pr- 3D printed coffee equipment is pretty functional. And since we always have like, we're kind of thinking and generating, it's like, I need this, I need that. Like, I want to fix this. Like, it's, so it's fun. So would you suge- like, say that's a good investment too, 3D printing? You know, if you got the time to learn how to design things in CAD, I won't say it's a bad idea, but I don't think it's necessary. Okay, and it's kind of pricey too, I would assume. It's a little pricey to start up, and the, the learning curve is not the easiest. I'm learning how to design stuff in CAD right now, and I'm like, I know Illustrator. CAD, I'm just like, why can't I stretch this? But like, I'm just like, I'm still like oh, I gotta punch it in. But it's 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 fun. I have I have some time to to afford to that. But yeah, I mean, if you have a way to to market that angle as well, if it's something you're doing and you want to share, go for it. I think it's kind of cool. Yeah, no, I appreciate you. Your story is really inspiring. I appreciate you, man. Yeah. Thank you for asking. Thank you, guys. Hello. Hi. My name is Amber, and I'm from Watsonville, California, South Santa Cruz County. Um, so I guess one question I would like to ask is we know that this area isn't the least expensive place to live. So what advice would you give for someone who is in that situation of, you know, you dealt with homelessness, but trying to start this company, what is some advice, not like to cut corners, but like things you would tell yourself starting out that you know now that you didn't know then? That is a hard one because I, I, I went through it. The first thing is to realize like how, how much do you in your own personal life, how much are you willing to risk? Like what are you willing to risk? What are you willing to lose? Um, I'm willing to lose a lot less now at this point in my life than I was then. Like I said, I have a kid, I'm married. Like I'm not going to do what I did 10 years ago. It's just not going to happen. Like I'm not going to run that risk because there's other people that depend on me at this point. People want to support you. That is, that is what I've learned. Don't ever lose an aspect of authenticity that you're trying to put into your product or your place or whatever it is, whether it's a coffee shop or a roastery or like a website. Um, don't feel as though you have to look a certain way or be a certain way. There is a certain amount of language that you should learn and know how to use so other people recognize that and see like, oh, this person knows what they're talking about to a certain degree or that we have a shared language in a sense. Um, but it's just to, it's, it's such a hard changing scene right now with like coming back from COVID and like tech campuses are coming back on and like prices are still going up rent wise and living wise. So that, that is really hard. And you said Watsonville. Um, so it's, it's understand who your clientele and your market is as well and cater to them, but never to, to lose that sense of authenticity for yourself. If that helps, I hope it does. And then something else is, well, like, cause I am a barista right? And I do pay out of my own pocket to attend, you know, classes like this or, um, you know, take trips to other coffee shops. Something you mentioned with story is really important. What are some events or places that you would prioritize on that list? Say expos or origin trips or classes you would take. I, I would say that you have a huge benefit and privilege of living in this area, in this greater Bay Area, the crown 
is a huge resource that offers tons of courses and classes and introduction to knowledge and people that could help you or support you. Um, I, I think building yourself up in your local community is going to be more important as a first step. Then if you want to go to a coffee fest or an expo and, and kind of hit that scene, it can still be difficult to network if you don't know what it is that you're doing there. Like you can go check out the breeze, the competition. That's always so much fun. Um, if there are, uh, throwdowns going on or any other coffee event going on in the Bay area, like, uh, what's happening next weekend. Um, there's barista competitions, uh, Next weekend at the Crown, I think. This so, weekend uh, we have well, they or is it this? It's this weekend. This weekend, no, it's a roasting competition. Roasting comp. Go, go, go to that. Go to that. Talk to people. Meet people. Um, you might meet somebody who's near where you are and wants to join you in whatever it is that you're doing. Just go out there and participate in coffee events. That that really is the biggest one. Local, like grassroots kind of stuff. That's that's where it's at. Really, I really enjoy the coffee fest. I think the coffee fest is really awesome. Uh, it's very human because sometimes it was not true this year, but I stopped going to SCA events, the, the you know the expos because they just became too uh, much of uh, bloated egos. This year it was different. I really loved this year. So it was like lots of cool people, but the coffee fest had always kind of more friendly vibe. It was more close and I meet I guess maybe because I'm introvert and I meet more friends and a coffee fest in San Francisco I don't know but I really enjoy that um, listen to this podcast also uh, what you guys don't know but uh, all our students can attend now free we have these cupping sessions and if you are if you are a Q grader you come here to calibrate you know so we like know what coffees we uh, reward and what we punish or whatever score lower but also people who are like you. It's like, I'm not a curator. I just want to figure out what coffees you know, are there in the world. Just come and taste with us. The next one is in October, and we do, uh, we do geishas. And we don't do geishas because we're going to go like, oh, I want to show you the best coffees. I want to prove you that geisha is just a variety. And there's great geishas, and I'm going, going to taste you on a bad geishas. So... And I'm sure that there's other people doing similar kind of tastings. And, you know, as Iver said, you meet interesting people. Last time we had something similar. We had 12 people and they had all different backgrounds. Many of them starting a business or some of them already already in business. And it's a great time to chit-chat. Hello. Hello. I'm Josh. I, uh, I, I'm partnering with Nate to start a novel, our book bar and cafe. Um, so I've got uh, probably also a million questions, um, mostly um, for me, it's a, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to stay to the pragmatic, <laughs> the pragmatic questions. I, uh, I think for us, you talked about values and I think that's a little, the, like, the values are really important, like having the, the direct uh, connection with the supplier but it's totally like a, a money thing. <laughs> like then you just work towards it. Like yeah. it's one of those things like you, you forgive yourself. You under, like you're, you're kind to yourself. I was not too kind to myself, but like try to be kind to yourself. See where you're at. Understand what you can do and what you want to do. They're different things. Right. Work towards what you want to do always, but appreciate what you can do. So 
here's the thing. One of the things is we're, we're going to be struggling. Um, well, of course, we're a startup. We're going to be struggling no matter what we do. Uh, so on for a startup, uh, we're not trying to go too crazy. We're just trying to have uh, perhaps a couple of roasts uh, that our customers can enjoy. Any uh, practical recommendation on a good place to start with the roasts? Like, you know, obviously the... I know that that's a, that's a marriage between like where you're getting the bean from, what kind of bean it is all like all of that. But any, any advice on where to start with that, where to focus on picking the first coffees that we're going to do. So we have, uh, like we kind of categorize our coffees in different ways now. Um, but we have like mainstays. Um, the first two, uh, mainstays that we put out was keynote filter and Gamut Espresso. Um, Gamut Espresso has always been a base of Brazil, um, some central component and some sort of high like African or something else like that. Right now it's a Papua New Guinea because this Papua New Guinea happens to have a profile very similar to an African coffee. Um, and I'm probably going to keep it like that for a long time. It's it's fluctuated over the years, um, but you know, butterscotch, caramel, little chocolatey fudge, that's the flavor profile we, we try to maintain. Um, great espresso, but we dropped the espresso label because it's very functional. A lot of people like it as the Melita pour over, very smooth. It's my mom's favorite go-to for when she does it. And every time she makes it at home, I'm always like, Yo, what is this? This is so good. She's like, it's just the gamut. And she, I was like, dude, every time. And then Keynote is just the Brazil roasted lighter. So I would say, again, by understanding your market where you are, do not do a huge departure for 80% of your customers. Brazil will always do well. You don't have to roast it dark if you don't want to roast dark. Very low acidity, very low bitterness, nutty, chocolate, some caramel, maybe a little bit of citrus, maybe, that's it. Approachable, good. 84 points, 83, 84 points. You don't, you don't need nothing more than that. Then you start adding other things that you think, like your higher, like, higher grown Arabicas, mild Arabicas from Central America, Guatemala, Salvador, maybe Guatemala is a little bit more recognizable because some people are like, oh, I love Guatemalan coffees. And like, well, but this other, cause like, no, I just like Guatemalan coffees. You're like, okay, like here you go. Like, so something smooth, low toned, you're going to want to cater to the other 20%, like higher, brighter, like more floral, more fruit, more citrus, whatever it may be. Um, you don't need more than three different things. Something, yeah, like light, medium, and a little bit, little bit darker. But you know that that Brazil hopefully will kind of carry through. Gotcha. Yeah, I love what you just said about the uh, the espresso blend because uh, anytime I mention it here, it sounds unique. I was like, okay, now somebody else is doing that, and actually that makes super sense in Europe, as you said. We do it all the time. The Brazil makes sense for the espresso, and because you don't have to roast it dark, it's low acidity. Uh, so I love it. Uh, if you were not married, I'd just ask you to marry me. Oh, I mean, you know, in Belgium, I know we'd all have to get married. <laughs> you can marry multiple people in Belgium. You can? Yeah. But it, everybody has to marry each other. Like, if it's three people, like, they all, all three of them have to marry each other. Okay, so it's, oh, so it's not like I'm marrying you and, like, two other people. Yeah, but no polygamy. Has, Only, that's fair. Yeah. That's super fair. Yeah, cool. I thought yeah. so. Okay. I'll pitch it at home. I'll see, I'll see what my wife tells me. <laughs> I'm so lucky she's not listening to this podcast. <laughs> uh, so uh, another thing on kind of the, the bean selection 
we're just starting to figure out that landscape and what that looks like. Uh, like the seasonality, like do you have to be careful when you get, you know, as far as timing, when you're ordering them, you know, wanting that freshness, understanding that you can't get beans from everywhere at every time. Like how much does seasonality play into your selection? A ton, yeah. a, a, a whole truckload. Um, yeah, seasonality is tricky. The, the other thing that comes along with seasonality is uh, storage. If you can control your storage conditions, I do not know what the average temperature and humidity is in Portland, Maine. But uh, there are some excellent resources put out by Cropster. I would recommend look, looking at some of their, uh, their info. Um, if you can keep your coffee cool at a relatively like high, well, medium humidity, you can stretch out that freshness. Uh, storage is huge is what I'm trying to say. Don't, don't overlook storage when it comes to like that seasonality. Um, and then also don't only just look at importers on your coast. Like it may cost a little bit more to like bring coffees from different parts of the country. But if you can, if you have a storage warehouse and you can get something from like California and you move two pallets, like 20 bags, um, and you have it stored there for three to four months, I don't know how long, how much volume you're going to be able to get through at first. Um, but I'd say 10 bags is a relatively safe bet, especially if you have a decent terms and contracts, you're going to have to build out those terms with importers and warehouses and all that. But um, yeah, just be, do be careful because coffees will age. And these are one of the things that I think as you get better at cupping and stuff like that, you have to really understand you're going to be cupping to make sure that those coffees remain fresh. Like these coffees, the, the ones I brought, the experimentals, I'm not trying to have them for more than two months. I'm not trying to have them for more than one month. Mm. I want them out because I know that four months down the line, they're not going to taste the same. And I do not want to deal with that problem. Yeah, sorry. I'm just thinking about storage. It's a it's a huge problem in Portland. We're we're like, uh, you know, we're right on the near the ocean, and so like humidity is actually a large challenge for us. You know, we we often go like up in the 80, 90 percent humidity, uh, pretty commonly. So, um, what's the temperature? <laughs> take your pick on any given day. That's kind of one of the funny things about Maine is we always uh, Maine's one of the few states where everyone likes to talk about the weather because it's always changing. Um, so uh, yeah, okay, I, I get it. Okay, yeah, it's kind of funny. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, but we we have some pretty violent swings in, in temperature, which is also a challenge for us in the storage. Um, but uh, anyways, I, that's good to know. Now, how so? You talked about this one. You're trying not to hold on to it, you know, for more than a couple of months. Are there other coffees like what is too long <laughs> to hold on to a uh, to to coffee? Dude, bean? I have had Kenyan coffees that are two years old, and I think they start tasting better. Honestly, some of them, because some of the acidity starts to fade out a little bit. You know, if they're stored in Grain Pro and they don't get like that that bagginess or whatever some ethiopian coffees do really well my some coffees like my honduran coffees i don't like having them for more than nine months i just don't i i've gone through that experience they start deteriorating after nine months they don't get bad 
but it's progressively a challenge. And fortunately I have like I myself and my team, we have very good knowledgeable roasters who can deal with the changes. But when you're changing profiles every week to keep up with the, the changes that are going on and those changes can be drastic. They can be radical. Um, and I see it more in like honey process and naturally processed coffees, like washed coffees that have been properly dried and like stored. Like they, they tend to hold well. Uh, that's another, uh, you know, interesting question. Uh, do the customers mind that you're changing a profile? I know some customers like the, like, you know, very like regular, reliable things. I've always said, <laughs> that coffee roasting is a very good job for somebody who's insane because you can do the same thing twice and get different results. Um, sometimes you have to change your profile to maintain consistency. Hmm. It's not to, not to change it, but to actually keep it the same. Because if you're losing moisture, that's going to change your drying phase, but it's also going to change how all the chemical compounds interact throughout that, that roasting cycle. So, you have to have knowledge and experience and wisdom as to what is going to happen and how it's happening, why it's happening. So we measure moisture. We measure weight in, weight out. We cup every day. If we start detecting a change, we, we, color, we, uh, we, we don't have an agtron, but we have a color track. So we are tracking color, inside, outside color. If we start seeing deviations of the delta, like the, the difference between the two, like we, we will adapt to that change to keep it the same. So it's hard. It's very hard. It's very yeah. involved. Do you think the uh, as far as like the changes in, in flavors and in origin, like do you think the customers will just join us for that ride? That's kind of like a, a fear that I have is whether the customers are going to like want to, you know, a customer like has this one coffee they really, really enjoy. And then a couple of weeks later, it's something else, you know, I'm going to say no. No, they don't want to be on that ride with you for the one type of coffee. Like if you have like my keynote, like if I change my keynote, they're not happy. They don't mm. like, they don't like the change. If, and the, the, the big thing is like that coffee is supposed to be 83, 84 points. Do not make the mistake of like one season. It's like, it's going to be an 86. It's like, yeah, no. What if you got new customers? They're introduced to that. And then you go back to 84. It's not, no, don't do that. Just know where you're at. Like, and mm. maintain that as best you can. Um, for the other coffees, the, the seasonal ones, yeah, take them on the ride. That's what they want. And then it's going to come down to you and your ability to like share a story. Like, I don't know how you're going to be able to turn that, but like you can, you can flip that angle of like, this is what this tastes like. Just like with terroir. It's like, this is the, the flavor of the conditions. Yeah. Well, we're, we're a book bar cafe. So talking story is totally the game. Yeah. yeah. You can so. be like, yeah, this one thing, this crazy thing happened in the environment and it created this sort of note of this, that, and the other. And if you can get somebody to appreciate the story and the, the receipt of the flavor, then yeah, do it. Do that because it's the reality. It's your reality and you have to sell that coffee. <laughs> I agree with you. I, like for me, like depends on your vision and you are the chef, right? You're going to decide you have your customers, but if you have a bookstore and you're going to offer me like two boring coffees, I'll be like, hey, where are the stories? And I, I would expect a little more. And I always, I don't know if I told you this story, but when I was in Paris last year with my son, we stumbled into a, a, a bookstore and 
they had awesome books in French, so I was like, uh, uh, but they had great art. And in a corner, in the back, they had a cafe with different coffees and wine. I was like, I want to live here. Books, wine, coffee, that's my place. So, you know, and, and they also had that kind of all the stories for the, the wines, and I could recognize some of them. I was like, oh, wow, this, this is a, just a beautiful place. So don't go boring. Yeah, no, I yeah, I feel like uh, so I'm also a tech nerd, so I have a 3D printer, and my brother has like a a uh, laser engraver, so we're gonna totally go crazy. Both kind of, I don't want to do too much visual storytelling, you know, with with uh, like plaques and stuff, but at the same time, I want to invite people to ask us, you know, about this stuff. So, anyways, this is great. Thank you so much. I really don't have any other questions. Really appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. If any, if I just had an idea. Like one thing that we were gonna do, but um, and I'm doing. But let's say like you you bought a roast, like you baked it. It's not good. You want to throw it out. You can even if you have people sitting down in front of you, you can even like offer it side by side. Like this is what happened here. This is what it's supposed to be. Mm. Same coffee. And if you can provide an experience, even by contrast, where they can see what your normal offering is and how much better it is than something that you made a mistake on, but you want to share that story. If you can share that story well, people are going to be like, oh, that's so amazing. That, like, they learned something. They got a bit of knowledge. They had that human connection, which is so, so important and integral as, par- as far as like, the coffee shop concept. It's no mistakes, right? Just like learning opportunities. Different paths, different roads to get there. Yeah. yeah. Outstanding. Thank you. So uh, I have uh, two more questions, which I know that uh, people the listeners would be angry if I would not ask them. I don't know if they will, but it's making shit yeah, up. Yeah, please. <laughs> so uh, you guys, one of your coffees has a label, which is a coffee review score. Yes, coffee uh, review. I want to ask you about this. Like, Does that really work? Well, first of all, let's explain people what coffee review is. And does that work if you label your coffee with, let's say, 94 from coffee reviews so coffee review is an online rating platform uh started by ken davis davis uh he just recently put out a book uh i think you gifted me the book or somebody here gifted me the book i think i can't remember no um sorry no it's fine I, i just remember like receiving it here at boot um the the scale i mean the website's been active since the 90s i believe right the scale is supposed to be similar to a wine scale, which is different than how we score things in coffee, right? You know, you hear, oh, an 88-point coffee. As coffee pros, we're like, oh, that's awesome. Average consumer, it's like, B+. Plus? I don't want a B plus. I want A's. <laughs> so, <laughs> so coffee review just kind of was like, okay, like, we'll give you A's. Um, here's the scale. Like, sometimes I'll say, like, oh, you know, like an 88-point coffee in SCA or even a COE or whatever it may be um, is can be can score a 94 or something like that on Coffee Review. So just understanding that the scale is different than what we use back-of-house industry. Um, I did start submitting to Coffee Review. I almost forgot that this was another way that we got the online... Uh, clientele is exposure through something like coffee review. It helped grant legitimacy with all these other big players. There's some other big names that like, you know, they're, they, they pay into coffee review. So like they, they can send samples and they pay for it to get reviewed. And it's an honest review. There's no, there's no 
shiftiness going on there. Um, but you get introduced to this huge marketplace of people that are looking at your coffees and going like, I want, like, I'll check them out. Like, oh, if Coffee Review thought they did a good job. And it's a nice ego boost for yourself to see that you're doing something well. Um, so yeah, starting off, it was great. And actually, even one of those, I, did, I stopped sending coffees to Coffee Review after 2014 when we got uh, several good reviews. And it was actually a Brazilian coffee, Brazil Louvon, I remember. It was a Louvon yeast. Um, from Belgian labs, uh, it was a you know, sparkling wine type yeast, and uh, it was it, yeah, it was a yeast inoculated Brazilian coffee in 2014 that got 93 points on Coffee Review, and it was so light I dropped it before first crack. It was so light their Agtron reader couldn't even read the internal, so I was very proud of that because it was during the whole like Bay Area light roasted coffee wars. Who can roast the lightest coffee? And I was like, ah, I kind of through the towel and after that I was like, not through the towel in, but I was like, that's an achievement. And then I started sending to Coffee Review again last year and we did really well. We did a canned coffee collaboration with Drip Dash and got a 93 point on that. Um, it was very well received, people liked it. So it was, and, and then you get to use that medallion and put it on your website and promote it. And you know, even people who don't know Coffee Review, they see medallions and they're like, oh, that's, <laughs> that's cool. Like it, it grants some sort of legitimacy. So back to the problem with like fair trade, sometimes people don't, they want to be told what's good. And if you have a third party saying like, hey, this is good, like it, it helps a lot. Don't let it go to your head, but it helps a lot. So it helps your sales. It helps with sales and gaining some new customers. Awesome. I think that's, I made a mistake with uh, not sending unleashed coffee when I was doing uh, there. Um, I was a bit angry at them uh, because they reviewed one Slovak brand and they gave them like, I forgot, like 92 points. And that coffee is awful, man. And I, I know some people at Coffee Review and I, was, as, as, you know, I told them this story. I said, well, two things might happen. One, you have to understand that we don't Q score. We score exactly, as you said, for consumers like wine, which is like, okay, duh, I didn't even think about that. And the second is that the coffee they send us and the coffee they sell might differentiate. We don't have control over that. That's that's the other thing. Like, I'll just say this: like, there people are surprised. They're shocked when I tell them that there is no controlling body that forces us to label the coffee in any which way at all. When you see coffee that says Honduras, El Salvador, Kenya, Guatemala, whatever, it's there's no way of verifying that. That's just literally you being honest. Please be honest. Just do a good job. Like just for yourself, like it's just like there, nobody's gonna like. There's no coffee police that's gonna come like you sold an El Salvador coffee as a Guatemalan. Like we're finding you. Nobody's gonna do that. You'll lose legitimacy, but that's a different thing. Yeah, hundred um, percent. My other question is about you guys on your website have a rewards program. And I also yes. was playing with that idea, but I never really executed it because I found it like, oh, it's just too much hustle. Is it worth it? Yes. Short answer, yes. Uh, we implemented the loyalty rewards program. So my other business partner, who happened to be actually my first employee, is one of those like, he, he's, a, he's a great guy. He collects uh, video games and other games on the side. He's a big game nerd. Um, so gamification is something that we like to do at Chromatic. We like to play games. We like pinball. Um, we just like to have fun 
with stuff. We have a, a good internal culture, I'd say. We saw a lot of weird online behaviors when COVID hit. A lo lot of strange things. And we saw uh, Google Analytics was still really good because iPhone privacy uh, changes hadn't taken uh, precedent yet. So we were able to, to do a lot with like data. So we analyzed data and we were like, why don't we make it fun to purchase coffee? Um, plus we, we see these behaviors where people come, they taste our coffee, then they go away for like a month or two. Then they come back and start purchasing their coffee again. So it's like, what happened in those two months? Like, why, why do they leave? It's like all this marketing from all these other companies that like kept on bombarding them. So I was like, okay, that's where I, I changed gears. And I was like, I'm going to introduce new coffees every week. Every week we introduced one to three new coffees every week. I was like, you're bored. I will... I will change that. I will make you not bored. I will bring a barrage of coffee so intense that you will not be able to drink them all. All right? Like, you, you want new and exciting and entertaining? I will bring you everything from the most, like, beautiful washed coffees to the fruitiest naturals to the most absurd, insane experimentals and everything in between. It, to, to Robustas. That's where I actually first, in 2020, was the first time I had enough courage and nerve to release a single origin Robusta. Because I was so afraid of like what other people would think if I put out a Robusta. Then I was like, you know what? I do not care. Other industry people don't, don't buy my coffee. C customers buy my coffee. Like I'm going to appeal to them. And the reward loyalty reward, the tiered loyalty rewards program was critical for that. Because once they came in, set up the account and started getting credits like for the rewards to spend on coffee or other things we also even made items there's like a drink chromatic coffee here sign like a like proudly serving thing that you cannot purchase people would be like i'll give you a hundred bucks like nope you have to buy coffee you can only earn it and creating that gamified system was so much fun for us and them because once they hit that tier where they could earn the sign they were so stoked and we were stoked for them, like genuinely excited. Everybody was happy. And then they were like, I had never tasted so many amazing coffees in my life. They were just so pleased. So they, they, we brought them in on us. And there's like a degree of loyalty, yeah. They, but they went on this journey with us. And some of them became our friends. Uh, last month, I had somebody, for the first time, actually redeem a latte art class a free latte art class. So they came to the roastery and I, I gave them the latte art class. Then I gave them a tour of, of the roasting facility. And then I was like, yeah, so like for how long have you been like with Chromatic? I was like, what do you, no, like I started Chromatic. He was like, wait, what? I was like, wait, I just got a training from the founder. I was like, yeah, dude, like that was like kind of like part of the deal, man. He was so stoked. And he, and he is a very loyal customer. He buys so much coffee. I was stoked. I was so happy to meet somebody. And then he got to learn more about the company, like one-on-one -on -one, and like we kind of became buddies. And that's one of those, those beautiful things. Like even as you grow, you're going to find those mega fans. And it's, it, if, you can, if you can make it fun for yourself and others, find, if you can find a way, do it. Because, you know, at the end of the day, they're, they're buying coffee. There's, there's a transaction. So you can't ignore it. You can't be like, but I don't want to admit that it exists. It, it exists. Come on. This is how this whole thing works. Like, let's, let's acknowledge it, make it fun, move forward with our lives and enjoy each other's company. Dude, I'm s I love that you are so weird that the same way as I am <laughs> with Green Plantation. And we almost, like, you, dude, like, seriously, like, we have so many similarities. Like, I remember when, um, you know, we launched also Robusta, but for different reasons. We actually, in uh, 
Slovakia or Central Europe, we have this holiday. Dutch have it too, uh, but obviously a little more PC. It's the 6th of December, you have the Santa coming with the devil. And if you were a good kid, you get the sweets. If you're a bad kid, the devil gives you charcoal and potato and maybe whips you, you know. So, and usually we, when we package, and we, of course, adults do that too, and we kind of give each other gifts. And we always kind of just a reminder that, you know, human is good and bad. We always give like chocolate and here's a little potato for you. So just remember that you were also bad, not only good. So instead of charcoal and potato, we suggested our customers that maybe this year to coffee nerds, you can give them Robusta. And we actually picked them pretty bad Robusta, you know, so. And, and we priced it like our other coffees. It flew off the shelf because it's a gay, great game. It's fun. It's an awesome joke. And the same with like dark roast. Like we had one coffee. We didn't go to the second crack ever, but we had one coffee which was like, you know what? We just roast a little bit darker because we have so many people who are intrigued by specialty world, but for them right now, the light roasts are too much. And we're like, okay, well, let's create a gateway drug for them. And we were so afraid what will the coffee world will, you know, like a Slovak coffee industry will tell about us. They will hate us. And I was like, Screw it, I don't care. Like, if Intelligentsia can do it, we can do it. I mean, Intelligentsia is a big brand in the United States, we can do it, so we did it. And that was one of the best choices because really, it is a gateway drug. People try it and go like, oh yeah, yeah. And it's like, what else do you have? That's, that's the big one. It's yeah. If you can get them in the door, it's like you're not sacrificing your, your, your values or morals if you're doing a dark roast, I don't, I don't think. Like, I, I used to kind of think that way, it's like, no dark roast. And then I was like, you know what? Like. I actually enjoy our dark roast, N not on a daily basis, but like on the cupping table, I'm like, oh, this is really sweet. It's nice. I can't taste the origin character, but is that such a bad thing when you have 20 other offerings on the shelf that all are origin character? And you know, it's somebody, it could be a customer that's a very loyal customer. They're like, I love all of this, but my parents are coming to town and they don't like the thing. Here is something for your parents. Come on, like we'll we'll do that. We'll get that in. And then the parents try it, they're like, oh, it's so and because it's fresh and it has some liveliness, maybe not acidity, but it's lively and it's sweet. And they haven't tasted a dark roast like that. And they're like, Well, maybe I'll if you can open their mind, that's that's awesome. Yeah, and we go the same way about the portfolio. Like we learned that and it kind of sucks for us because we are smaller and you know, you always have need money for more and more coffee. But as soon as our customers got bored that like, they didn't find anything more interesting, they left and they go somewhere else. They come back usually, but it's like, I don't want them to go away. So one thing what we did, after every order, you get a coupon code 5%. And I hate to discount our coffee. We never do that. This is one exception. You get like 5% off for your next order if you order within two weeks. And like, I cannot drink this coffee in two weeks. Well, you better do. It's, you better do. It's like, because... This is not, this is, a, because you are awesome, you're buying our coffee regularly, you get this reward, there's no other way to get this reward. And we of course have to pick up always the portfolio and have it always fresh and fresh and more and more coffees because we just, you have to, it's almost like being, you know, like entertainer, you have to entertain. I love how you said that, that you, I cannot entertain you, I just bring some more, so you entertain all the time. Yeah, that's, I think that's the thing, it's just, there's people, and sometimes they don't even, they're not even gonna buy the new coffee. They just wanna see that you got it. And they're like, okay, I'm just gonna grab my, get my keynote or they'll get their keynote, they'll get their gamut and then they'll get the one other thing that came out that's new. And they're like, okay, I'll try this too. And it's like, yeah, and if you get a fourth bag, I'll give you. <laughs> so, like, 
So, but that's what like these, some people for, there's eight in the series, the experimental series that I brought. Eight, that's a lot. And they're half pounds. But there's some people that came in and they're like, yep, this one, this one, that. they took one of each. And they just made their own flight at home. And I did like a tiered discount. That's the other thing. Like I, over time I started doing like tiered discounts for volume breaks, just like to kind of push more and more coffee onto the, the, the consumer in that sense. They all seem to really enjoy the, the gamified version of it. And it's all like a lot of them I can do in the store because online there's the shipping and like sometimes I don't want to deal with it. Perfect. All right. So we talked for almost two hours. Wow. Great. So, man, thank you so much. This hey, was thank you for having me. It's really pleasure. I learned so much from you. I've, I've learned so much from being here around you as well. Thank you for your questions, guys. I appreciate you guys. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>